Welcome back, nature lovers, to another episode of the Birdie Bunch Podcast. And before we get started, I just want to remind everyone that next week is Spooky Bunch merch drop. Because um, it's spooky. And where might that Spooky Bunch merch be? Of course, on our website at thebirdiebunchpodcast.com. Um, if you want to get a spooky good deal, go ahead and use that code SPOOKY for 15% off. And with that being said, let's get into it. All right, welcome back, nature lovers, to another episode of the Birdie Punch Podcast, where we talk everything conservation, education, and fascination. Today, I am joined by my two lovely friends and co-hosts. And you're Brittany, and I'm CJ. And I'm Matt. And I'm Brittany. <laughs> <laughs> how y'all doing this week? And how are we all doing this week? And how are we all doing this week? Well, I think we're doing one. pretty great. <laughs> <laughs> we're having a, we're having a, we're, we're ready for the spooky bunch, Matt. We're ready. Yeah, thanks for asking. We're, yeah, no. We're, we're itching. It's next week, folks. Mm-hmm. We've been Darkest. planning this for since last year, basically. Yeah, no, this the these have been planned since about I'd say last what, December. Last November, last December, yeah, something November, like that. November, December kind of era. Well, I was not part of that planning. However, I've been pumped for Spooky Bunch everything this entire time without knowing until recently. So I'm it's, pumped. I'm ready. It's a it's a uh, 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 ghoul, ghoul, ghoulish good time to be a spooky bunch fan. Nailed it. Yeah. To to get y'all hype, um, I'm not going to spoil anything, but we got some big guests planned. <laughs> got some cool topics. We had some fun topics. Yeah. Yeah. We got some really, really cool stuff coming at you. Like, this is a lot bigger than last year. So I'm very excited to see it blossom like a nice fall plant, a nice pumpkin. Like a like a summer squash, if you it's will. It's like a, a gourd. It's a giant, the great giant pumpkin, Charlie Brown. I think it's that's James and the Giant Peach is what it is. Yeah. A walnut, if you will. It's a walnut of a situation, <laughs> if you will. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, a pecan. A bit of bit pecan. of a... Uh, Brittany says pecan. Because it's pecan. It's pecan, but... No. Okay. It's pecan. Pecan do oh. What the hell are you talking about? <laughs> I'm leaving that in and beeping it. <laughs> um, Brittany, do you want to bring us into our first segment for today? Absolutely. Our first segment is, of course, our creature feature. And the creature feature that we are featuring Wait, today. Let me put in the music. <laughs> For this week's episode, we have a very special bird to talk about. It borders on terrifying, but has a big pair of shoes to fill in its environment. This week's creature feature is the shoebill stork. This giant bird lives in the swamps of East Africa, standing at 5 feet tall and weighing around 12 pounds. This bird is in a, is re really is in a league of its own. Though it shares some traits with storks, 
herons, and pelicans, it doesn't quite fit into any of the families. It has its own unique traits and adaptations. So scientists have placed the shoe bill in its own family. It may be an outlier in the water birds, but its unique traits allow it to perform an important role. It's named after a large flat bill that has a, a surprising amount of power. While most water birds rely on small fish and amphibians for their diet, the shoe bill goes straight for young crocodiles or lungfish, which we have talked about in previous episodes. It stands over the water waiting for the unassuming victim, then plunges a large bill into the water. It pushes all of its weight onto its prey, stabbing it with its sharp tip of its beak. Once the prey has been impaled, the shoe bill swiftly pulls it out of the water. It then shakes off any debris and decapitates its meal with the razor sharp edge of its beak. These birds are able to stomp out any rising crocodile or lungfish populations, maintaining balance within swamps. Without the shoe bill acting as a population control, other predator species would greatly increase in numbers and reduce the overall biodiversity. Their general large size and large bill allows them to do this, even if it makes them look like a nightmare spawn. We'll let that keep haunting us for a bit as we move into our current events. So my current event for this week is from the National Public Radio's website, npr.org, and it's titled, Scientists Say They Could Bring Back Woolly Mammoths, but Maybe They Shouldn't. So this article was published on September 15th, and basically it is talking about the possibility of bringing woolly mammoths back. I feel like an article like this pops up every couple of years, but uh, you know people seem pretty excited about it. So <laughs> using recovered DNA to genetically resurrect an extinct species, which is the central idea of the Jurassic Park franchise, uh, maybe moving closer to reality with the creation of a new company that aims to bring back woolly mammoths thousands of years after they disappeared from the Arctic tundra. Flush with a 15 million infusion of funding, Harvard University genetics professor George Church, known for his pioneering work in the genome sequencing and gene splicing fields, hopes the company can usher in an era when mammoths walk the Arctic tundra again. He and other researchers also hope that revived uh, other revived species can play a role in combating climate change. We talked about this a little bit last year during the Spooky Bunch when we talked about de-extinction and the uh, possibilities of bringing species back from the past, right? And the, the, the notion that mammoths could potentially help with climate change is something that's really enticing. Not, and that doesn't even include how cool it would be to have such a weird species back. But there are scientists who don't think that this will have any impact on climate change. And it's just, it's, it's not worth the ethical struggle to bring back a species from extinction. A professor in evolutionary genetics at the Stockholm-based Center for Paleogenetics was skeptical of Church's claim and said that they don't personally think that it'll have any measurable impact on the rate of climate change, even if it were to succeed. 
there's virtually no evidence to support that hypothesis. And it could very well have a negative effect on temperatures because they just don't know. So as fascinating as it would be to have such a cool species back in real life, having these colossal mammals back might be genuinely upsetting for some of these ecosystems. So there's a, there's currently a predicted six-year timeline <laughs> to get mammoths back. That's what this company is projecting. So I don't know what that means, but an estimated 1.4 million individual genetic mutations separating the ancient creatures from Asian elephants. They're trying to undo all that with some gene splicing and produce an embryo within the next six years. It, it's wild, this story. So if you're interested in learning any more about it, please go check out this article. But yeah, I, I don't know how I feel about it. <laughs> There's just so many questions that just that brings up for current environments. Like, cool, you're going to bring back the mammoth. Where where are you planning on having them? What What environment does that look like? And then what does that look like for the other animals that are involved? And then uh, there's just so much to that. Does it say why he hypothesizes or they hypothesize that it would help reduce? Yeah, they, they do explain why it might be able to help ecosystems. They, they think that it would, uh, just to, to quote uh, Church and others believing that the manless resurrection um, would be a good thing. It would plug a hole in the ecosystem left by their decline about 10,000 years ago. Mammoths once scraped away layers of snow so cold that the air could reach the soil and maintain the permafrost. After that, they disappeared. The accumulated snow and its insulating properties meant the permafrost began to warm, releasing greenhouse gases. And they think that that is a contributor to climate change, you know, of, of equating to cutting down the rainforest or... <laughs> or oil spills, or <laughs> I don't know. It, it could be argued that it is a valid thing, that bringing mammoths back could solve something, or at least something that could fill that same ecological niche could be really good, right? They believe that it will restore the ecosystem to how it was 10,000 years ago without thinking about the change that has happened in the past 10,000 years. Yeah, I was just wondering, like, okay, they're thinking that it might cause some good, but what damage is it going to do? Like, have they explored that? Because the world, yeah. spoiler, has changed in the last 10,000 years. Yeah, not even the damage it's going to do, right? It can't undo the damage already done. Right. So, it, it, it's again, it's a fascinating article. I, I highly recommend checking it out. NPR always does a great job analyzing, you know, everything, seeing things from both sides. So, go check it out. They do a good job. So, my... Nature in the News comes from The Guardian, and the title reads, Escaped Zebras Bamboozle Maryland Officials. They're just too fast. Um, so basically, in Maryland, in the Prince George County, there are some of, I think it says there's five zebras that are roaming free after escaping a private farm. And so apparently this farm has a bunch of different exotic animals, um, zebras being some of them, and some of their herd just escaped. And now this farmer isn't commenting on the fact that these zebras escaped from their farm, but 
the police are having a really hard time trying to round them up. And they're basically saying the closer they get, it's making the problem worse because they just keep running off and they're too fast. And yeah, it's just they're having a really, really hard time collecting these zebras. There's um, some interviews down where someone in the town said that they thought that it was just a really weird deer and then realized it was a zebra because who expects a zebra or zebras uh, just roaming around in a county in Maryland. And so, yeah, they're trying to figure out how to get them back to this farm. They, the, at the end of the article, it just says, they won't attack you, but please don't try to corner, corner them or try to catch them. They're not used to being handled by humans, so they will kick. Zebras do bite. Zebras just in general have pretty interesting personalities and are very, um, can be very sassy, to put it nicely. Um, I just think it's interesting that one, the farmer isn't making any type of comment or um, it doesn't say that he's even helping with trying to get these zebras back. I think that it's just, it's just interesting that they're just roaming around, hanging out. Hopefully that they're able to catch them soon. Um, and there's not just invasive zebras. <laughs> I was gonna say it definitely feels it's reminiscent <laughs> of a few weeks ago on our exotic pets episode when we we got to the uh, cocaine hippos, right? Like they're they're not quite Pablo Escobar's pets being released, but this is a species of animals that can be rather dangerous when unchecked. That we have no idea how to catch. How do you catch a hippo? What do you do to catch a zebra? I don't know. Nobody does. So locals are just thrown and it's going to throw off the ecosystem until they figure it out. I'm hoping that they catch them soon. I'm surprised they haven't. And they may have it just doesn't say in the article that like they haven't reached out to like any local zoo or anything like that because zoos typically have protocols in place for an escaped animal and they're usually pretty knowledgeable I'm being able to to handle that type of situation. Um, it doesn't say that they haven't. It doesn't say that they have. It does say in the article that the farmer does have a license to keep exotic animals from the U.S. Department of Agriculture records. But um, I'll be curious to see if they if if they keep their license. So obviously, it's, um a bit of a spoiler alert for the next month, but it seems like today had some spooky content. I think people are kind of ready for it to be spooky season a little bit. We had a little bit of a nightmare fuelish bird for a creature feature. Then we went into some de-extinction stuff, right? We talked about some potential escapees, which I don't think zebras are particularly terrifying, but at the same time, I've never been up really close to one, so I could be totally wrong. And I'm going to close out today's current events with another really spooky current event, not only because it focuses on some night-dwelling denizens, but also it's not good news. I just want to interrupt you really quick. Good word. Very happy about it. I was very proud Good word. It. I love the word denizens. I love the word night. So it's a bit of a non-recent one, but I came across it when I was doing some preliminary research for 
um, comparisons and research points to branch off from with my moth research. And so I came across an article from March 3rd, 2021, titled New Report Shows UK's Moth Population Has Declined by a Third. Now, in 2019, the United States had a paper titled Decline of the North American Avifauna, which essentially showed that bird populations in North America had decreased by a third. And a lot of that were, you know, my research is trying to tie that to potential moth population drops in the United States as well, which is kind of what we're working on this local region. And so in doing my research, I came across this article that shows that over the last 50 years, there's a new report on Britain's larger moth population that shows about a 33% decline in moth populations. This is research done by the Butterfly Conservation Group. It's a wildlife charity in partnership with the BBSRC. And essentially it was a just tens and millions of just a crap ton of records that were gathered throughout much of Britain. And it showed that abundance of larger moths in Britain decreased by 33% over just a 50-year period, which is frightening because it's strikingly similar to what the North American paper on birds released. Um, it showed that according to researchers out of Cornell Lab of Ornithology, as well as just a, a ton of other scientists doing this whole-scale survey, they found, like I said, about a 29% decrease in birds, about a one-third as well. And there's a lot of ties between birds and bugs. A lot of our neotropical migrants, which are birds that migrate from South and Central America to the boreal forests of Canada to breed every single year, when they come through in the spring, they eat using a process what's known as gleaning. Essentially, they will, you know, comb over leaves and pull caterpillars off. And the moths, obviously, a proxy for the caterpillars. And so, in the UK, we are seeing this massive drop in moth abundance and diversity, which would also lead to a drop-off in caterpillars as well. And if these kinds of results are copied and pasted to the United States, that could be a major player as to why we might be losing as many birds. Um, moths are hugely important to the life cycle of the bird, and so seeing this in the UK is particularly frightening. It then goes into talking about potential reasons why, with humans being, <laughs> what else is new? A big one, mainly habitat destruction and deterioration, right? Um, when you have loss of habitat, um, you also tend to have a loss of biodiversity within the habitat, right? So not only are you losing chunks of land that are native chunks, right? They're forests that are turning into plots of land. But because of that, you're also losing a bunch of these random plants and moths oftentimes are highly specialized right when we talk about lepidoptera which is the group of moths butterflies and then skippers as well usually these insects are laying their eggs on really specific host plants for example the big one that we talk about all the time monarch butterflies on milkweed they don't hang out on elm trees they don't hang out on corn plants or soy or they don't hang out on birch or anything like that they don't hang out on maple trees either they hang out on on milkweed and a lot of these patterns are relegated across lepidoptera and so when you're seeing these losses of abundance of plants in general as well as diversity you see a huge hit in species decline because the species that are relying on these plants these highly specialized caterpillars and moths 
When the plants go, they go too. And the other one is artificial light, right? We're seeing a huge trend of light pollution. We're seeing that affect birds as well. But moths are a photosensitive taxa. This means that they're really sensitive to changes in light. A lot of moths navigate by using a process known as transverse orientation. And essentially what they use is celestial bodies like the moon or stars or something like that to navigate. That's how they orient themselves to the earth. Now, when you throw in a bunch of artificial lights, sometimes you take away the visibility of stars in cities or, and a lot of times, in fact, there's some pretty scary statistics to where a moth, any moth that you see, you know, flying around a light, those big clouds of them, only about 33% of them make it to the next morning. This is because either they'll die of exhaustion or they're slim pickings for, or they're easy pickings rather for predators, right? They're right there. They're dazed and confused because they think that's the moon that they've been using to navigate. And all of a sudden the moon's like right there. They're like, whoa, what the heck? Where do I go now? All these things combined are creating a big issue for moths. And this is being shown in the UK. And I keyed into it because that's what I'm looking to see right now for my research. So pretty spooky. Um, a lot of people are spooked by moths in general. Frankly, I like them more than butterflies. Uh, maybe you could call me a contrarian, but also I think moths are pretty sick. So something that we can definitely put a halt on, but we need to put in the work to do so. So for our main topic today, we have interviewed uh, some guests. As you may have seen from our title, we interviewed Freya McGregor and Virginia Rose of birdability they're going to get into it a little bit they've been in the podcast before but we're going to kind of get into birdability right now so let's cut to that interview all righty so we are here now with virginia rose and freya mcgregor of birdability so lovely to have you both here again why don't you go ahead and introduce yourselves Oh, hello, and thank you so much for having us, Matt and CJ and Brittany, and Brittany, welcome. Um, my name is Virginia Rose. I'm the founder of Birdability. That's it. <laughs> um, I'm, hi, my name's Freya McGregor. I, my pronouns are she, her, hers, and I'm the Birdability Coordinator and an Occupational Therapist. Oh, it's so lovely to have you both back on. And um, on the topic of birdability, you know, we have a lot of new listeners since the last time you've both been on. Can you kind of remind all anyone who did listen before or introduce what birdability is to our new fan base as well? Sure, I'll be glad to. Birdability came about when after 20 years in Austin of birding with a bunch of walking people, um, and being the only person uh, as a paraplegic using a manual wheelchair forever, um, I finally thought, wow, this, is, this has been such an amazing uh, experience for me. I'm sure that other people who have access challenges would love to do it. And I think the reason they aren't here is just they don't know about it. They just must not know they can do it. And so... They're set up the whole idea of birdability to find people who across the country did not yet know they were birders and uh, help them find their way into the birding world. Uh, when we're now a nonprofit as well. So we became a nonprofit in January this year and um, I'm the only staff member, uh, which is exciting and, and a lot of work. It turns out there's a lot of work to set up as a nonprofit, but 
um, there's also a lot of people who are really excited about the work we're doing, about being welcoming and inclusive and learning a bit more about accessible birding locations and helping to kind of normalise other ways of going birding that don't necessarily involve hiking speedily down a trail and checking off a list. I mean, lots of people go birding in other ways than that, but we do talk about that a lot about, you know, sitting still or going slowly or it's, it, you, there's no wrong way to enjoy wild birds. So we, um, we talk about that stuff too. That's awesome. I um, found you guys through uh, CJ and Matt, obviously, and I have really loved learning kind of everything that you guys do. Um, I am a big um, proponent of inclusivity and something that I'm really passionate about and have done a lot of work with. So I just think that's amazing and wonderful. But I know we've talked about, we've also talked about Blackbirders Week here on the podcast. And I know that you guys have started Birdability Week um, as an inspiration from Blackbirders Week. Um, can you kind of talk a little bit more about how Blackbirders Week uh, inspired you and just kind of how you guys got all of that started? Freya? Yeah. So this time last year, um, we, we, Virginia and I, just as two random people, um, were given um, an opportunity to organize some kind of event in October related to birdability. And um, we weren't a non-profit or anything, but Black Birders Week had been such a massive, amazing learning opportunity for me. I'm a, I'm a white birder from Australia. Um, so growing up in a different culture and as a white person, I did not realize um, how many barriers to birding and feeling welcome and included as a member of the birding community. And the social and cultural environment that a lot of birding can take place in in different parts of the U.S. can impact a lot of black birders and other um, BIPOC birders. And it was really impactful for me. I, I didn't know and I, didn't re I also didn't know how passionate I was that that was not okay. The same time, that was at the start of June, the same, um, in June, National Audubon have this um, initiative called Let's Go Birding Together and it's held in Pride Month, it's trying to encourage Audubon chapters to reach out to local Pride organizations and invite LGBTQIA plus folks to go birding. And so because my background is as an occupational therapist, I realized all these similarities between these two groups of folks and birders with disabilities and other health concerns. And so pulling from those two events, Birdability Week last year came about. Last year was a week of um, online events and prompts trying to um, discuss inclusion and access uh, and birders with access challenges, trying to uh, amplify their stories and um, talk about talk about this. Because one in four Americans has a disability. This isn't a small group of people. And most of us at some point in our life, whether temporarily or permanently, will find ourselves with some kind of disability or um, chronic illness or something going on that um, injury that that impacts their ability to do the things that they want to do which might include birding anyway this time round, we're having birdability again birdability week again in october but this time i'm paid uh, <laughs> to coordinate it which is quite exciting and we have a bit more lead time and um, a bit more um, set up so it's going to be bigger again um, and this time we're inviting um, Audubon chapters and bird clubs and anyone who is interested in holding an accessible, inclusive outing sometime in October, 
like the Let's Go Birding Together model um, to help us celebrate Birdability Week. And we hope that these groups will realise how easy it is to do that and we'll keep doing it, not just in October. You know, that's such a beautiful story and I love being able to talk about it with you both. Um, I remember being particularly awestricken by it last year when we talked about Birdability with you and then um, it's super exciting to be able to return back to that and introduce, you know, this topic to a new listener base as well. And um, as far as Bird Ability Week, can you kind of, you've touched upon it already, but can you kind of outline what the importance of having a Bird Ability Week is and what that does for, you know, introducing more accessibility into nature? I can start talking a little bit about that. Um, and then I'm going to defer to Freya again. But um, I'm going to pick up on something that she said a moment ago, which was we want to make sure that people know, all people know, how easy it really is to create an environment whereby everyone can feel included and not just included, but that we have found the audience that is out there. And a lot of what I'm trying to focus on and Freya too, of course, is that we want to be really intentional about finding our audience. It's one thing to create this beautifully accessible park with all the right signage and all the right benches and all the right railing levels. And it's quite another thing to let everybody who could go to this park know about it. That's an entirely different part of this program. And it's also, it's one thing to hold an, an outing and assume that people should know that they're invited. And it's quite another thing to reach out and make sure that they definitely know that you would like them to come. Um, and that plays into the, um, the built environment, the physical environment. Virginia's talking about the accessibility of trails and other birding locations, but also the social and cultural and institutional environments that we um, are in when we go birding or if we're members of bird clubs and Audubon chapters and if the trail's fantastic and there's people there but all the other non-disabled people aren't very nice, it's not going to support folks to go birding. So um, Birdability Week, yeah, so there's kind of, when I think about our work, um, I think about three different kind of columns. I think about the physical accessibility of birding locations, um, teaching people about that, helping people realize what what they need to be looking for if they're trying to hold an accessible outing and also um, trying to encourage folks to help advocate for accessibility improvements in their community. So there's that. Then there's the welcoming and inclusive birder stuff. Um, and that includes um, trying to encourage organization, groups and organizations to, to implement some of those suggestions. And then there's also that bit that Virginia was talking about, inviting folks with disabilities and other health concerns to come birding uh, and introduce them to all the many joys that, that you can find if, if you uh, know about this hobby. So Birdability Week will have bits about all of those um, kind of attached <laughs> in one way or another to the different events. Yeah, I want to remind everybody about um, the steps that they can take, anyone can take, in order to get accessible birding going in their location. And to that end, um, I realized that the pilot program that I had created in Austin was simply something that I needed to write up and then spread around and let people know that 
to be honest, I am just a person in a wheelchair who birds. And then I know how to use the phone. And I know in some ways how to use the computer and write emails and things like that. But the point is, I was looking for how we could find these people. And so I simply started looking for people who had access challenges and went to each of those support groups in town, made appointments and attended all of those meetings. And um, so, for instance, the spinal cord group and the amputee support group and the stroke support group and the, the multiple sclerosis group. And, and then I realized I was picking up takers, birders all along the way. And I thought, anyone can do this. It doesn't have to be me. It can be all of us. And then once you find the accessible parks, made a list of accessible parks in Austin, then it was just a matter of setting up birdability walks once a month. And voila. I I don't know. I'm, I'm always, I always learn something new and, and see something from a new perspective whenever I talk to both of you. So thank you so, so much for one, coming on the podcast, and two, just sharing all of these awesome tips for people to get involved with accessibility and, and birdability. Um, I just want to make sure that we say this. Have we said the official dates for Birdability Week this year yet? We have not. It's uh, October, Monday the 18th until Sunday the 24th of October. And there are, are there any like particular events that you're like super excited about like, going on? Any, any that we can, we can like talk about? Yeah, so actually none of the events have been um, shared uh, publicly yet, uh, except, except that we definitely want folks um, holding accessible outings in October. And there's lots more information about that on our website. Uh, our website is birdability.org. You can also find Virginia's steps to implement accessible birding in your community up there, as well as information Perfect. about Birdability Week and how you can hold these outings. And if you tell us about them, I will happily put them up on our website so pe more people can find out about them and we can help celebrate the work that you're doing. Yes. Um, but there'll be Birdability Week without giving away too much. Uh, <laughs> follow us on social media. No spoilers. <laughs> Sign up to our no spoilers. To, um, to find out more. But there'll be social media prompts. Uh, there'll be one or two panels that will be really cool. Awesome. Um, hearing about different things, different topics. Um, there'll be at least two different workshops um, that anyone can come along to. So there'll be lots of stuff going on and... Um, a few interactive opportunities, as well as the as well as the panels and webinars. So yeah, it, it should be it should be pretty awesome. Perfect. And the other thing is that, that I wanted to mention is we want to. I think Freya and I are both really um, good, actually, um, about not just getting on the stage and telling everybody how it is. I think we are really very concerned with inviting people who have various access challenges to tell us how it is and we are listening we are we are learning from you what you need to make your environment friendly and accessible and and inspiring for you that's so wonderful. I'm so excited for Birdability this week this week. I've actually reached out to my local Audubon, so we'll see what happens. Fingers crossed. So I'll let oh, y'all know. Fun. I'll let y'all know if I hear back about a Birdability event in Chicago. Um, that'd be exciting. But yeah, I, before I let you all go, is there anything else that anyone wanted to ask or talk about? We got a little bit of time, which is surprising. <laughs> yeah. 
I just wanted to say like how just inspired and amazing I think both of you guys are. Um, I know I, like I had said that I am really passionate about inclusion, but in my last facility, I did a lot of stuff to make the environment more inclusive. And it's just something that it just hits home really hard. And so just getting to just talk with you both is just so amazing and so inspiring. And just thank you so much for coming on and chatting with us because you guys are both wonderful. Thank you, Brittany. Thanks, Brittany. There's, um, Oh, this is a spoiler. One of the panels um, is right on the target of welcoming and inclusive birders. So, um, oh, okay, good. It sounds like it sounds like Brittany, you might you might be interested in in tuning into that live or or watching. Well, everything will be recorded and will be up on our website and everything afterwards. So, um, yeah. Can I cut out the spoilers? No, I can leave it in. Cool, I'll leave it in then. Consider it spoiled, apparently. Spoilers. <laughs> I haven't told you who's invited to the that's panel. That's true. That's true. I haven't mm, told you true. the name of the panel or what the theme of the panel is, but that's I've told true. you the general topic. <laughs> we um, know it exists. There is a panel everywhere. There will be one. There will <laughs> be a panel of some kind. Uh, yeah, focuses so it's... on inclusion. Well, that's absolutely wonderful. Thank you all so much again for being here. Before I let you go, do you guys want to like plug? I know you've plugged uh, Birdability Week, but like specifically birdability.org. Anything else like specific where people can find more resources? Birdability.org, yeah, it's our website. We've got a lot of resources up there about what individuals can do, what organizations can do, what bird festivals can do to be more welcoming and inclusive. We've got heaps of information about what makes a really accessible birding location, um, the calendar of events, the Birdability Week information. There's lots and lots up there. You can sign up to our newsletter. It's only once a month um, to keep up to date. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Birdability. And there's another big, exciting um, event coming along really soon. So Birdability Week will be amplified by National Audubon. We're really, really grateful Ooh. for their wonderful allyship and partnership, um, not just for Birdability Week but for a lot of other things. But there's another big organisation who we've partnered with to start a little program up here really soon. So that hasn't been announced, so I better no not spoilers. drop any spoilers on no that spoilers, one. No spoilers, no spoilers. But... <laughs> Stand by because that's going to be that's going to be really cool as well. The other thing I should mention because we are a brand new nonprofit organization, donations are really important um, because without funding um, we can't continue this work. So if you would like to donate to towards us, uh, any bit helps truly. The five dollar donations that I see come in have a really special place in my heart. So you can donate to us via check of um, online electronically via our website as well, birdability.org. Absolutely. I was gonna ask one more thing, but I totally Oh, another thing on our website is the birdability map, um, which we should definitely mention briefly. Virginia, do you want to explain that really quick? Well, let's see. Um, when I'm thinking about the birdability map, all I can really think about is how many sites are on it. I think there's 800 now sites on it. And one of them is in New Delhi. And one of them is in Japan. And That's I so used cool. to just say road trip, right? Road trip. And now I'm like, oh, uh, I'm going to have to get on a plane. What else? Um, I know Freya wants to talk about with respect to the birdability map has to do with, is it the printable checklist 
Oh, good. You talk about that. Oh, yeah. So the Birdability Map, if you haven't um, heard about it before, it's a crowdsourced um, resource with inf detailed information about the accessibility of different birding locations. And so the way you can contribute to it is there's a print printable checklist, if that would help you to take out into the field. But you back when you're at home um, on your computer, you just answer survey questions there. You don't have to make any judgment calls about the accessibility of the place so much as just tell us what is or isn't there because different people with different access challenges need different things. Um, and then people can find out that information ahead of time before they before they head off um, to go exploring. So the birdability map, um, anyone can contribute to that. There's more information on our website about how to do that. And that's um, a really neat thing we're really proud of. And that's another thing we we do with the National Audubon Society. They um, they have the map wizards who do all the technical map stuff, uh, which is really fabulous. That's exactly what I was gonna ask you about. Thank you for kind of filling that blank for me. But that's all that we have. Thank you both for the thousandth time for being on this podcast. It's so lovely to speak to you both. Ugh, and I, I've missed speaking to you both. So. Have a, uh, a, a good rest of your week, and we'll come back to the rest of the episode. Thank you, CJ. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Brittany. That was so wonderful. Thank you to both Freya and Virginia for being on the podcast. We always have such a blast talking to you. Thank you for being on again. And we'll have to have you back next year. Just as a reminder for everybody, we've been talking lots of spooky stuff today. But October is also Birdability Month. So if you have a local, uh, you know, Audubon chapter or a local um, organization that you, you can set up a Birdability event with, definitely do that. I've been working hard to try and set it one up with my local Audubon chapter. So let's see what we can do. Increase some awareness for some uh, a really awesome cause. But with that, let's wrap up today's episode. Where can y'all be found on the social meds? I can be found on Instagram at cj.greco. That's cj.greco. And I'm probably going to post a picture of me in my birdability shirt this week because I got it in the mail. So very exciting. You can find me at Matt Valiga. That is M-A-T-T-V as in Victor A-L-I-G-A on Instagram. And I'm, you know, just trying to stay engaged any way I can, you know. It's hard finding the time, but I've had some really cool wildlife encounters. So hopefully I'll find the time to implement that into my posting structure for the next couple of weeks. You can also find me on Instagram at the Brittany underscore bunch, T-H-E-B-R-I-T-T-A-N-Y underscore B-U-N-C-H. Um, and with gearing up to October, I'll probably be posting some um, spooky content and uh, just some some really cool animal stuff. So keep a lookout for that. That's where you can find us all individually, but collectively you can find us on Instagram at the Birdie Bunch Podcast. You can also find us on our website at thebirdiebunchpodcast.com. On that website, you can find our blog posts a little bit more about us, as well as our merch store, which I'm going to plug and just remind everybody that our um, Spooky Bunch merch has dropped, and we do have a code, uh, SPOOKY, for 15% off all of your spooky needs. We also want to give a big shout-out to um, our Patreon 
subscriber Gabe Andrele. And if you would like uh, to get a shout out, you can also uh, support us on Patreon. Um, but that's not the only way that you can support us. You can also support us by just telling people about the podcast because we greatly appreciate it. We also would really love feedback. So if you give us a five-star review, um, we will read that review here on the podcast. We don't have any new this week. However, that could change by you. So go on, go ahead and go on there and tell us everything that you love or hate or whatever um, about the Brady Bunch podcast. And we would really greatly appreciate you. Just make sure it's five stars. If it, you can even say what you hate. But we'll read it out if it's five stars. Yeah, just five stars. <laughs> and with that, we will catch you next time. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Birdie Bunch podcast. We would like to thank Sarah Dunlap for designing our logos, Elliot High for being our writing and production assistant, and Connor Whitman for being our music producer. The mission of the Birdie Bunch podcast is to inspire an inclusive community for conservation by using education to promote fascination.